Well, let's jump right in and read the passage of Scripture that we will be looking at this morning. We'll be in John chapter 17. Um, and as we pick this up where we left off from last week, I want to, before I read it, I want to remind you of the pronouns that Jesus will use here. Um, he will say they and them in the scripture that I'm going to read. And he is referring specifically to the 11 disciples who are with him as he offers up this prayer. But before I read it, I, I want to also remind you of their names. The names of the 11 who are there with Jesus. This list is, it's a few places in uh, the Gospels, but this one is from Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 to 4, which says this. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and while he is not with them anymore, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So let's read John chapter 17, verse, I'm going to read 17 to 23. We're really going to focus on 18 to 23, but 17 really plays into this. So John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Let's just stop and pray again. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear today as we, uh, as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we hear your word, Lord. I pray that the Spirit would work in our hearts and our minds to turn us toward Christ-likeness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a reason that uh, Jesus prays for sanctification from verse 17. He prays for the sanctification of his people in the truth of God's word. There's a reason that Jesus strongly emphasizes holiness in both individual Christians and in churches. There's a reason that verse 18 follows verse 17. There's a couple of reasons. One is numerical, and one is the words that are there are incredibly important. Our holiness, both individually, so your holiness, Dana's holiness, so our holiness, both individually and collectively, Logansville Church's Holiness is tied to the mission that Christ has commissioned us for. And of course, the most famous commissioning is seen at the very end of the gospel according to Matthew. So in Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20, Jesus says this. Well, Matthew narrates and says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee 
to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The statement that Jesus makes here in verse 17, in John 17, 17, as he prays to his Father when he says, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. This prayer request is not really an end statement for Christians. It's actually a purpose statement. Jesus prays that his disciples would be sanctified, that we would be set apart, made holy to the Lord. Not simply as a means to protect us from the ravages of sin, although it certainly does that. I don't want to downplay that in any way. That gets at what we were looking at last week. But he prays that his disciples would be sanctified in the truth because they're about to participate in his mission. They're about to be sent as he was sent. About a month from this point, about a month from the events when Jesus is praying this to, uh, with them that night, about a month from this, Jesus will issue the Great Commission. Those verses I read in Matthew 28. In about a month, give or take, he will send them into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for sin and victory over death. But here's the prelude to that. What we're seeing today is Jesus praying for that event. This is that moment in time when he is privately praying with and for the eleven in order to give them strength, to give them courage for what they're about to see over the next couple of days. Namely, his arrest and his death, followed by his resurrection, as well as what they will be dealing with uh, even after his ascension, when they will officially be apostles, sent ones. He prays that they would be sanctified in the truth because God's word is truth. But stop here for just a minute. I want to come back and hit this again. Holiness. Their personal holiness in this life, as I said, is not, is not the end in itself, but it's a means to an end in the sense of their mission. And the same is true for Christ's church. If you, read the, if you read the letters to the seven churches of the book of Revelation, the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, and if you've never read Revelation or are intimidated by Revelation... I would encourage you to at least read the letters to the churches there in those first couple of chapters. These are real letters written uh, to specific churches in Asia Minor. I, I actually think all of them are actually in uh, what is now Turkey. And they are, risen, they are written from the, from the risen and exalted Christ, Jesus speaking to his, these churches. And if you read these letters... One of the themes that stands out is Jesus' zeal for the holiness of his church, both in terms of moral purity and in terms of of doctrine, the belief that they hold to and and teach at the church. Today, if you were to go there, all of those churches, all seven of them, stand as ruins. They're tourist attractions. 
they're warnings to us all. Christ gave up each of those churches for destruction because they didn't repent of their worldliness. That's why I will pray, as I did a little bit ago, that any church that refuses to proclaim Christ would be shut down. Even this church, if we would refuse to proclaim Christ, if we would refuse to confront sin, if we would refuse to act in holiness, to be holy, that Christ would shut us down because we're praying for the holiness of Christ's church. Yet at the same time, at the same time, we also cling to the promise of Matthew 16, verse 18, when Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He's raised up other churches in place of the ones that he closed down. He has called them to the same standard of sanctification in truth, the same standard of holiness. And here as he's praying for his disciples, he identifies holiness, the holiness of his people, as the intended result of his own mission and and sacrifice. Look again at verse 19. He says, And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. So all of this means that the Great Commission... And and our holiness are undeniably and and inextricably linked. This is obvious when you look at the words of this prayer closely. But so many have forgotten this at best. Or, or, Or worse, they have compromised their holiness for the sake of pragmatism. So let me give you an example. I don't know if you know what I mean by that. The statement is they've compromised their holiness for the sake of pragmatism. I want to give you an example, not to throw anybody under the bus, but just so that you understand what I'm talking about. There was a church, I think, in South Carolina several years ago now. This is a mega church. They opened their worship service on an Easter Sunday with the ACDC song Highway to Hell. The pastor later said, while saying that he would do it again, he said, we are committed to doing whatever it takes to bring people far from God into a relationship with Jesus. And he said, and I believe we're going to see over 500 people pray to receive Christ this weekend. That's pragmatism. And it has just continued to spread throughout churches. It's a compromising of the holiness of the church, even in the worship service itself, in an effort to bring people far from God into a relationship with Jesus. And if I could say a little bit sarcastically, because evidently God's Word and the Holy Spirit are not enough, and so you need some power cords too. But Jesus is praying here that the results of our truth-shaped holiness will necessarily point to the disciples of Jesus Christ being marked by mission and unity. And so as I said over the past couple of weeks, really from verse 13 through the end of this prayer, um, Jesus prays that his people would be marked by joy, holiness, truth, mission, unity, and love. And today we come to the markings of mission and unity 
on the disciples of Jesus Christ. Mission and unity. Look at mission first. Look again at verses 18 and 19. So bear in mind, verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus has been telling us all through John's gospel why he was sent. Probably the most famous Probably one of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, John 3.16, explains why he was sent in Jesus' own words. For God so loved the world that he gave, sent, his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John explained really in the opening verses of his account here of this book, He says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Later, Paul will explain to Timothy, he'll say it this way. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. The reason Jesus was sent, the reason he came into the world, his mission, as he explained even in John 10.36, was that the Father had set him apart and sent him into the world to save sinners. And as he is praying here for the eleven, he is making it clear that he is passing this task on to them to proclaim the good news that Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. He's praying that they would be made holy in the truth of God's word for the task of bringing the truth to the world. In their union with Christ, these men are to be marked by joy, holiness, truth, and now mission, being sent. And in verse 18, we can see really three essential characteristics of this mission. Look at verse 18 again. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Let me give you all three characteristics. Sent by Christ, sent into the world, and sent as he is sent. Sent by Christ, sent into the world, and sent as he was sent. So let's begin with sent by Christ. Sent by Christ. Now, a basic... um, hermeneutic, a basic system of interpreting and applying the Bible, says that we must determine who Christ is talking to, or in this case he's praying, so who is overhearing this, who is he talking about here, before we immediately apply the text of Scripture to ourselves. So here he is specifically praying for the eleven who will soon be sent out as apostles, sent ones. And here now is how John records the actual sending. Here he's praying for it, but later in chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, the actual sending takes place. This is after the resurrection, but obviously before the ascension. So John 20, verses 21 and 22 says this, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. He issues the commission and he gives the Spirit, just as he said he would. He has been talking in chapter 14, 15, and 16 about sending another helper, another paraclete, the Holy Spirit, to be with them. And in chapter 20, we see it take place. I don't want to go too far down this trail, down this rabbit hole, but when Jesus issues the commission, whether it is here in John chapter 20, or the Great Commission as it's recorded for us in in Matthew chapter 28, or, or when we read of His sending them to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth in Acts 1 verse 8. These commissions, and, and it's the same commission, just said in different ways, they're all given specifically to the eleven. And we have to study the other scriptures to see how that's passed on to us. So later in their writings, the apostles, they will pass on the commission and they'll do so, for example, like this. In, Paul writes to Timothy in, in 2 Timothy 2.2. He tells Timothy to pass on the faith to the faithful. So 2 Timothy 2.2 says this, And what you, have heard and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. He says essentially the same thing in Titus chapter 2. He gives it a lot more specific. Includes other people. Older men, younger men, older women, teaching the younger women. But essentially, he says the same thing. Pass this on to faith to the faithful. But then Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then later, in chapter 3, verse 15, so just a chapter later, he writes this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness. And respect. So here's how all of this fits together within the life of the church. James chapter 3, verse 1 tells us that not all of us should be teachers. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17 tell us specifically that there are those who have been, been put in place, given by God, to teach us. It makes this clear. Not all of us are called to teach and preach in this way. In fact, that Hebrews passage, Hebrews 13.7, ties holiness into all of this when he says this, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. That's a call for me to be holy, right? But It goes even beyond that. So while not everyone is called to preach, some are compelled to preach. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.16, Necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul was compelled to preach the gospel. And he argued that it is Christ's means of building his church. And so he famously said in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 17, Everyone, quoting from Joel, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So not all of us are called to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But all of us are commanded to be prepared uh, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. So we all have to be able to proclaim in one sense or another, in one way or another, the good news of Jesus Christ. Why are you a hopeful people? Look at this world that we live in. Why do you have hope? Let me tell you about Jesus. Now we could take this further and talk about the variety of spiritual gifts that Christ has given his church, about how they all work together to build up the body of Christ and and fulfill the Great Commission. We could talk about how some of you have the gift of evangelism, others have a gift of administration or of service or of financial giving, But the bottom line is this, if you are a Christian, you have been called to the church and therefore you have been called to support in whatever way God has gifted you the mission of Jesus Christ. The church has been sent by Christ, which is why we are here in this geographic spot on earth, at the end of the earth, or at least pretty close to it, to make disciples of Jesus Christ. To proclaim to them that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why we're here at the ends of the earth. Christ has sent his church and so here we are, sent into the world. We've been sent into the world. This is the second kind of characteristic of this mission. But there's a bit of a play on words here. He's just said, he's just told the eleven that they will be hated by the world. And yet now he's talking about sending them to the world. So is is this just simply a suicide mission? They're going to hate you just like they hated me. Now I'm going to send you out to them. Well, in one sense, maybe it is a kind of a suicide mission. But this is where we can see that the book of John uses this word world in so many different ways. So, so let me kind of explain it like this. Do you remember Acts 1.8? I've alluded to it a couple of times already, but it says this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let me ask you this question. Who lives in each of those places primarily? Well, Jerusalem, Judea, are filled with people of Jewish descent, Right? Samaria was a nation or a people group um, who are half ethnically Jewish and half Gentile. And then we Gentiles, we live to the end of the earth, pretty much everywhere else, all throughout the world. You might remember that back in John chapter 10, Jesus had kind of, I don't know if you caught this, but Rather cryptically, he had used a phrase. Let me read a couple of verses here. You'll remember part of it. He starts by saying, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. He's sending his disciples and by extension the church to the ends of the earth out into the world to gather those sheep I have other sheep that are not of this fold. To gather those sheep into his fold. And those other sheep, they're Gentiles. They're us. They're us. All of this means that the church has been sent geographically into the world. The church has been sent evangelistically into the world to proclaim the good news and yes, it's, it's also even been sent dangerously into the world. The world does hate Christ. Those undertaken this, undertaking this mission have been sent by Christ. They've been sent into the world. And then third, they've also been sent as he is sent. Or as he was sent. So sent as he was sent. This means that the disciples were sent for the same purpose, to glorify the Father by bringing the good news. It also means that, that we potentially face the same fate that Jesus faced, because the world hated Him. And because the world hated Him, it also hates His disciples. But let's think about this in a, a little bit different way. Jesus enjoyed life. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus enjoyed life. He ate and drank with tax collectors and other notorious sinners to the point of being called a drunkard and a glutton, which he was not. That's just what they were accusing him of. But he enjoyed being with them because he had a mission, of course. But he also loved them. He looked at Jerusalem and wept because they rejected him, because he loved them. His mission was to proclaim the truth, hope, and love through the gospel. And he didn't just do it with his words. He also did it through his holy life. He also did it through his perfect obedience. And he remained obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we have been sent as he was sent, with the truth. And so as Jesus continues this prayer, he makes it very clear that not only, is he, not only is he just praying for the 11, but he has turned also to include others. Listen to verse 20. I do not ask for these only, these men within earshot, these 11 guys listening to this prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's praying for all who will believe in the message of the apostles. He's praying for all who will believe in what will become the message of the New Testament, the message of the Bible. He's praying for all who will believe because of the word proclaimed, the word preached. After all, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We have been sent as he was sent. And so I want to tell you, it, it is perfectly fine, to in, perfectly fine and good 
to enjoy life as Christ enjoyed life. We're to do so as he did, though, in holiness, with our eyes on the mission that he has entrusted to us, to the, to the church, to call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We have been sent as he was sent to proclaim that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so we can confidently say that he is praying for a particular people to be kept safe, to be marked by joy, holiness, truth, mission, and also unity. Unity. Look at verses 20 to 23. Again, in verse 20, he expands it, not just for the disciples, but for all who will come after them. I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Unity. We've already seen the connection between holiness and mission. And so right away, I I should point out the, the connection between mission and unity. It's right there in verse 21, and again in verse 23. We are called to unity that the world may believe, that the world may know, Jesus prays. The purpose, or at least one of the purposes of the unity of believers, is the fulfillment of the mission of Christ, the mission of His church. And so, let me ask this. What does all this oneness here, or unity, mean as Jesus prays this? I'm going to tell you here in a second, but I want to start with what it doesn't mean. Unity here in this prayer isn't mere lip service. Unity for the sake of unity isn't unity. Most of you have experienced this in, to one degree or another in real time, even in church. Churches um, filled with people who claim unity but who were not at all united in doctrine, not at all united in love for one another. There's another this is really another reason why we have been moving toward embracing an, an historical confession of faith. That we might stand with other like-minded Christians, even throughout history, a great cloud of witnesses. And, as, and say, as Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. At this moment in time, in the year 2020 or whatever year it is now, the church universal, the church around the world, particularly in the Western world, is dividing, actively dividing over social causes. It is dividing over doctrine more and more and more every day, it seems. And so we need to make a stand together. And the truth of Scripture. And if we're the ones who will hold to the truth of Scripture, then by necessity, 
We must be the ones who are united in our love for God and our love for neighbor. Jesus said that's the summary of God's law. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus did that and fulfilled that law for us. And this must be our characteristic as we become Christ-like. This is the result of the gospel. Love, we're going to get into that more next week, Lord willing, as we continue and finish chapter 17. But if we are united in truth and love, which is really all that I just said here, we are to be united in truth and love, then we need to understand how we are united or in what ways are we united. So there are three, at least three, maybe there are some more, but let me just give you three here quickly as we finish up. We are united mystically, spiritually, and truthfully. Now let me explain. Mystical unity. I don't, I don't typically use the word mystical um, because it kind of has some negative connotations sometimes, at least in the way that I think. But mystical or mystery is probably the best way to describe this aspect because we are united in the same way, Jesus says, that the Godhead is united. This is a mystical unity because we can see even from these verses that it transcends our understanding. That we don't understand everything that Jesus is even praying for here. Look at verse one, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then jump down to verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me. We know that God is Father, Son, and Spirit, yet He is a single God. We know that the Father is God, and the Son is God, and the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, who is not the Spirit, who is not the Father, and so forth, right? We know it. We don't understand all of that, and that is okay to admit. In fact, it would be not okay if you didn't admit that, probably. We know it. We believe it, even if we don't understand all of it. We also know that the Apostle Paul kind of likens this, this mystical, this mysterious union with the human body in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. In verse 12 he says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And then down in verses 20 to 27 he goes further and he says this, As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We're united in this way to care for one another, as Paul is illustrating there. 
to use our roles and our gifts to accomplish His purposes. Do we understand it all? No. But there it is. It is a mystical unity. Second, this is also a spiritual unity. A spiritual unity. So if Christ addresses the the mystical unity there in verse 21 and, and, and alludes to it again in verse 23, then he addresses the spiritual really in 22 and 23. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. How is Christ in the church even today? It's through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, right? Listen to how Paul explains this kind of spiritual unity where we are united with Christ. He, does, he says this in Ephesians 4, uh, verses 1 through 6. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The spiritual unity that we have as Christians only comes through the Holy Spirit who was sent by the Father through the Son. We stand united, not just simply on a, on a doctrinal statement or because we're in the same building on a Sunday morning. We stand united because we Christians have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We stand united because we've been sealed as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it when we, when we reach glory with the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual union. And then finally, there's also a, a truth unity. Truth unity. This is where this all comes full circle. Look, look back up again at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Through their word. Specifically, again, this is the message of the apostles that would, of course, go on to be compiled as the New Testament. These apostles are to be sanctified in the truth because they will tell the truth. Truth that brings life and salvation. Truth that will bring this world from the darkness into the light. Truth that will cause people to proclaim, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Truth that says, well you're in luck. Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We are united in the truth of that good news of Jesus Christ. So we stand united as Christians. Not just because we meet in the same building on one day a week. Not just because we share a doctrinal statement and say, this we believe. Americans do that, right? We stand united 
on the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. That God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we leave here today and go about our lives, go back to work, school, um, go back home, go back to our neighborhoods, Father, that we would uh, live on mission, supporting the mission of Jesus Christ to, to make disciples, and that we would remember that we are not alone but that we are united with brothers and sisters, a family, a body, and that we are united because of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.